לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Shalom and welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamud in Highland Park in the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shemet. Joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, New York City. I'm Jay Chesed, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Check Today School, Long Island. It's great to see you guys. You know, first we got to start out saying I got, I got some very, very lovely reactions uh, from our recent Parsha Talks. Uh, we have we have a really wonderful crew of, of wa- viewers and listeners so thank you at the beginning here thank you for watching and thank you for listening and those of you colleagues or other students of Torah who are sharing our uh, insights we are very very honored that you are doing so you don't have to attribute anything to us because let's face it we're doing the best we can here ourselves you know, but, and uh, if we weren't getting paid all this money we would still do it for free we enjoy it, and what we really enjoy most is disagreeing with each other, because that that way we we can illustrate you know all of the differences that we have and the common love that we share to the Torah, and of course this week's parsha gives us no shortage of material to disagree on because it's an amazing parsha. It's probably one of the most difficult parshas. It's a crisis parsha. It's a parsha that really goes to the core of the whole experience in the desert, the core of the whole Torah. Basically, so we're going to kind of gloss over the beginning, which is um, related to the Mishkan, some some kind of footnotes to the Mishkan, of course, a census. and well, We get with, a reprise next week when it's about Shalim. Right. And, and, and uh, for those who daven from the traditional Sidur, they do Parshat Kiyor every morning. So. Exactly. The... the, the uh, the text relating to the the sacred entrances um, and the sink and the basin, etc. And we have, of course, uh, a reiteration of uh, we have the introduction of B'tzalel, extraordinary individual, and the reiteration of Shabbat in the context of covenant uh, and and the the passage that we recite every Shabbat, V'sham Ruven Yisrael Ta Shabbat. So in in so many ways, this is important. But the crisis moment of the Parsha, and really the crisis of the whole uh, event in uh, in the desert, is that the people see that Moses is just taking his time. He is, this is chapter 32, verse 1. The people see that Moses is tarrying, He's, he is late which ought to teach everyone never be late because if you're late, the people will get restless. It's a very, I mean, lots of interesting uh, lessons here, but what do the people do here? Rabbi Barry Chesler, what happens? Holy cow. They, um, <laughs> they come to Aaron and they say, we need you to make us a God because our leader is gone. 
And I think in my version, they need to see God. That it's not an accident that the first word of the chapter is Vayar. That the people are seeing and they don't like what they see because Moses has not reappeared. Okay. I said this, I've said this before, but I think that it's worth pointing out that the people's connection to God, Sinai aside for a moment, is mediated through Moshe. So and now Moshe even, is gone. And now Moshe is God. And who knows if he's coming back? And I don't think they're saying we need a new God. They're not throwing out the God of Sinai, but they need to be able to see him because people need to see what's going on. So this goes to really one of the core questions, which is, what's the deal? What's going, why do people, why is idolatry such an issue? Why is it so attractive? What, what does it seem to respond to in a human being? Um, why do they need to see it? And, and of course, you know, we, we think that we're so sophisticated that we don't have any of these inclinations. But if you just scratch the surface here, we could probably identify idolatry uh, in many places in our own uh, midst, in our own culture. Barry. I think that idolatry is sensual. It's physical. And the invisible God is not a physical God. It is perhaps an intellectual or a spiritual God. And people want to tap into what they can sense. And it's not an accident that some forms of idolatry are wrapped up with sexual activity, which is also very sensual and can be dangerous if the focus is only on the senses. Would you include music and dance and other forms of tactile engagement? I think so. I mean, they, I mean, music is interesting because it's something that we hear, and that's how we mediate God in the world, right? The Israelite God is the God who speaks so that we may hear. Dance is a little bit different. It has no, lang no formal language, shall we say, but it is visual. You can't really imagine a dance. So I would, say, I would say slightly different. Say these two forms really tap into the emotion. Uh, you know, idolatry unleashes a kind of emotional uh, outlet or outpouring, uh, you know, and, and focuses it on a, a visual object. And, and I think, you know, we've talked many times about the power of the visual and how uh, the Torah and Judaism, by extension, really wants to veer us away from the visual precisely because of the damage that it could do. You, you see something and you fix your, your, your mind on it and there's no room for diversity of opinion or ideas with that. You know, there's one of the things that's interesting about this, and we can talk about, you know, do they want another God? Do they want, you know, just something that would represent the true God? Does that they want a false God or represent the true God? Is the, is the, is the, the calf somehow in place of Moshe? Um, but... Moshe himself, Moshe is the greatest leader. Moshe is the greatest, you know, per, person who has the, the experience of the divine. At the end of this parasha, well, not the end, the end with, the, with a different kind of visual image with the glowing skin. 
But when Moses is up on the mountain trying to reconcile with God, and we get the 13 Midot, what does Moses say? Hareni na et kevodecha, show me your presence. Moses can be seen to have, I think, the, the analogous re- reaction to the people, which is, I've had it with this invisibility thing, and you have to, to be a little bit more present. Show me your ways. Teach me your ways. Teach me. It doesn't say visual. And then it says, uh, or the other way around, actually. Um, show me your glory. And God says famously, uh, I will walk past you. You'll see my back. But you can't, my face will not appear. Uh, uh, you cannot see my face for no one can see my face and live so God is seen in that God is is uh, portrayed in that passage as giving Moses a visual experience not a non-visual experience but just a kind of a small one my back the midrash is that God showed Moshe the, the tefillin not on the back of God's head um but Did he clarify the, whether it was Ashkenazic or Sephardic? <laughs> not, but not the full dose, because because but but that what's interesting to me is that Moses also has if it is a failing that the people have that we need something visual. Moses has the same failing, and and he probably handles it a little bit better, but he gets the same message, which is I'm sorry, you're going to have to live this religious life without visual, without you know eyewitnessing. So, so I, keep, I, wait, 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 wait. I keep going back to, to a statement that uh, Rabbi Israel Silverman, Allah Vashalom, many, many, many summers at camp with him. He used to say something I'll try and, and imitate. He says, there's the genius of an invisible God <laughs> is that everybody can perceive God in their own way. It's, and, and there's something remarkable about that, that, that the, the, the denial of a visual access to something enables every one of us to perceive of God. And I would even go so far as to say that the vision that Moses has there is a vision. It's, 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 it's the most blazing vision that, you know, this individual or any individual could have had, but it still re- remains in the realm of vision that is communicated to us by words, which we need to interpret. And so, but it's even more brilliant than that, because I think, you know, following up on Jeremy's comment about the, the tefillin, what is tefillin? Tefillin is a sign. So what Moses is actually seeing is the sign of God. And not God himself. And not God himself, because the vision there, I think, is a little too difficult. But on the other hand, we have to come back to the end of the parsha where Moses has this radiating experience of God, so much so that he must wear a mask when he appears before the people because they can no longer see him. And that may be the true tragedy of the golden calf is that Moses is effectively removed from the people as well, not just God. And on the other hand, when Moses is in the tent, in communion, communion and communication with God, he takes off the mask because they're panim el panim. So I, I take a different view of that. I think that 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 it's it's I guess you know I, I'm so connected to the radioactive image. You know that that coming close to God. You know he comes to the source, the the whole the core of the nuclear reactor, and he's he he becomes radioactive himself in in a, in a quite a literal way. He glows, okay, and and by by having that experience, 
you know, with God, he himself, he can't, it, it, it's now part of it. And it begins to manifest the vision that he had at the burning bush, which was that you can have God and not be consumed. And that Moses becomes kind of the living candle. It's a beautiful Midrashic image that Moses is the, the chief of the prophets who ignites and sparks every other prophet in history. Uh, and, and the light basically goes from him to what, what the veil then signifies is the protection, its fear and also honor. I mean, I don't want to get too carried away with, you know, veiling the bride, but, but why do we veil the bride? And well, they're talk- often radioactive. I think we can agree <laughs> on that. You right. know, but I actually think that may, maybe maybe this strengthens the idea from from Nachmanides that what what they want is with the golden calf is they want Moshe Acher. They want a, they want a replacement Moshe, and maybe at the end Moshe does become the calf because the calf is sparkly, um, and Moses in the end of the day ends up gleaming like gold. So if maybe he's the bush. By the way, the bush also back at the beginning of this whole you know, Exodus experience narrative, Moses is afraid to look. He hides his face um, because he's afraid to look. He is seeing more than he can handle. And the people uh, want, want, they can handle even less. And they want, and then in the end of the day, Moses is gleaming, uh, perhaps, perhaps like the burning bush, perhaps like the calf itself. And they can't look anymore because it's just too frightening. Okay. There's too much radiance. Let's, can we do a frame-by-frame frame analysis of what Moses does here? Because the story is so, so um, just filled with, with so much of uh, possibility or of interpretation. So, so God, the, the people, they, they succeed in convincing Aaron to make the, the calf, okay? And then God says to Moses, Lech red right? Precious, right? Go down because your people have acted basely. You brought them out. You, they have veered from the, the path. And so, uh, and God says to Moses, uh, I see that this people is stiff-necked. Verse 10, let me be, I will destroy them. Achalem, which is ukal, I will let my rat, my, I will eat them up, basically, I will destroy them. And I'll make you a big, uh, a great people. Moses intercedes. And convinces God not to do that. Shuv mecharona pecha vinachem alara alara leamecha, and uh, take back your your anger. And God relents. Can you? Great moment of leadership. How for whom? For, this is God as the brilliant political theorist. He says these things before Moses says them. In other words, God says, let me destroy this people to prevent Moses was saying, God, I cannot take this people. Let's start again. And Moses is forced in the role of having to defend the people. So you're saying that that, that God is is the, the political theorist or, or Moses? Yeah, no, God, this is brilliant diplomacy. You get the other person to, you say what the other person wanted to say so they can no longer say it. I think I, I I look at Moses and think what what a great moment he he's like the you know stop God he's like referee here you know pushing back I'm pushing back on you Zachor you know remember what you what you said 
Right? Is that where he says it? Zechor Avram Yitzchak Yisrael Abadecha. Well, that's back to the burning bush. Yes. So he's he's putting himself in between, and and so I think so. I'm, I would say that Moses. This is a brilliant moment of his leadership because he knows he's aware that he's indispensable to God. He's a, there's there's some greatness in him. There's an there's no question that there's greatness here, but I think that we have to be careful that in our zeal, as it were, to promote Moses and Moses as a leader, that we take away too much from God. Because in your reading, what kind of God are we left with? I'm, I'm left with I, kind of a nebbish. Exactly. You know, these people, well, but I don't think that properly speaking, we can... <laughs> Have a religion where God is a nebis. I think we can certainly have a religion where God is a nebis. Because, <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, no. Because when God says, leave me alone and I'm going to kill him, that's like, hold me back. Hold me back. Don't let me, don't let me go. And, and, and so I'm, I, maybe they can both be great. But, you know, Lama Yomru Mitzrayim, what do the Egyptians say? That's just always such a, Bad. It's amazing to me how often God falls for that one. That's just a terrible argument. <laughs> but okay, so it appeals to God's vanity. All right. So, so yes. Am I minimizing it? No. I'm saying that that there's a reading here that God is completely disappointed and God is devastated by this. And and God has. So I want to take the Rachmanis. I don't want to think of God as a nebish. I want to think of God as earnest and trying so hard i want to break through to humanity and i and, and i want to give them some i want to give them the principles i want to give them the precepts i want to give them the way to live and they just don't want to have anything to do with me they 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 need things they're not ready they're not, and i can't no, take no, it they're, anymore. They're, okay, no, no, they're I not think... ready they're not ready is a profound religious reality and i think that that's a little bit bigger than um than you know uh, God's vanity or whatever, and and as you know, we talked about this last week or two weeks ago. I, I'm really attracted to this the papers that Rashi has with other midrashim that um, that the story is told out of order, and that the Mishkan is actually supposed to come after the golden calf. That the golden calf is is the realization or triggers the realization on God's part that that if there is going to be this connection, there needs to be. Um, uh, you know, something that they can build, something that may be, in fact, visual and beautiful in its own way. Um, I mean, I can, I'm attracted to the other position too that that the uh, that the Mishkan has an independent value, not just as a, a reparation for the calf, the but, kind of intellectual bigamy. But if the people aren't ready, then then I think that sounds to me like the religious reality that we all go through, which is that's what it means to actually believe in God, that there is something that surpasses the world. That the world cannot bear, and and um, and so to be immortal in the presence of something immortal, and to be finite in the presence of something finite, it's going to be hard, and there's going to yeah, be okay rough, rough so spot. The, the text wants us to identify the the moment that God changes His mind. Look at you got to you got to appreciate the irony here. God wants to destroy the people. It's almost there's a it's there's a Noah hide kind of echo here that God wants to destroy the people and recreate the people with 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 a, a righteous central character named Moses 
And Moses says, knock it off, basically. You can't do that. And God quickly changes his mind. And it's the same word that is used in the Noah story, which is God regrets. God regrets having made. And here, God regrets having thought these things. It's there's, there's the irony is unbearable. Okay, so uh, let's go to the next scene. The next scene is that Moses comes down, and and I'm going to say I'm going to put the debatable proposition on the table, which is this is Moses's finest hour. Moses comes down. He gets the report from Joshua. Joshua says that it's like Kol Milchama is a it's 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 breaking out. There's there's like it's a hockey match down there, right? Oh, it's a hockey match. <laughs> right. Five for fighting. I know we're going to get the, the, the text here on this, okay? <laughs> right? And 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 Moses says, no, it's not. It's kolanot, okay? And then, he gets closer. He sees the calf and the dancing. He becomes angry. He sends forth the tablets and he breaks them at the base of the mountain. Discuss. Anger issues, great leadership, or uh, or take us into the Midrashim. I mean, you know, yes. I find one of your students that says, Rabbi Chesler, what happened there? What did he do? Why did he do it? Well, I think the immediate reaction is anger management issues. Um, I think that, you know, we have to look at the scene literally. Moses has been to the mountaintop, and now he's come down to earth, and he finds earth. He's no longer on the mountaintop. And what he took from the mountain, which is, we might say, the living fire of God, which has carved out these luchotes, they can't be in this world. There's too much God in those commandments, in those luchot, in those... Uh, in the tablets. In those tablets to stand in the world. And therefore, he might be angry at the people, but he's also angry that this God cannot endure in our world with people. You know, I kind of think <laughs> of it as, you know, the image of like, you know, God, you know, the, the challenger, it, it, it enters the atmosphere and it breaks up. And, and you know, it's, it's, the analogy is a bit of a stretch, but, but you're right. He's coming down from on high. He has this radioactive thing. It can't, it's, it can't sustain itself in the world. It's too hot. It's too, it's too, there's, there's, it's too nuclearized. And it, it breaks. And, and, but then there's the, the added piece of the humanity, his humanity here. Which is so, I think that it's a cautionary tale because the people want God in the world. That's why they have this golden calf made. And I think that sometimes when we read the story, you know, what I picked up on when you were reading Elliot is that what Moses reacts is not so much to the ego, but to the dancing. To the dancing. Yeah. That that's a sign that goes with the coal the quote that he heard that the people have been carried away yes, yes. by their experience. Very much, very much. It's and he can't abide that. Dude abides. So it's mixed dancing. Mixed dancing. Well, it, well you, you never know what happens. You know, maybe you it's know, when it breaks out, it's not good. 
Okay. So, you know, the, the, um, there's, there's, uh, there's uh, so many wonderful midrashim about this, which testify to the fact that, you know, poetry, anything that's poetry doesn't just mean one thing. It's not like we just, we're trying to ascertain the facts here. And we, once, once we ask, ascertain the facts, we've got to resolve. It's, it's poetic and the midrashim go in both directions. Like there's one that, that relates to Barry's approach from a moment ago that said that he di- didn't, it's not that he threw the tablets down, it's that they dropped them. Moses is an 80-year-old guy. He's a little more than 80 now. And he's hewing these two massive, you know, rocks, carrying them down a mountain. Come on, man, how did he do that? Well, he did that because the tablets were themselves filled with spirituality. But once the people worshipped the calf, the spirituality left the tablets. They became nothing but rock. They were no longer the the point of connection between heaven and earth and he couldn't hold them anymore and they fell um you know another way to to look at it and that and that just really captures i think the approach that you had is it was just uh the the people's actions banished the spirituality from the moment alternatively um you know there's a passage in the talmud in which god says you know well done yasha uh, uh, you know well done that you did it. Um, uh, and God was impressed with Moses' incredibly demonstrative gesture of, of rebuke. And, and, you know, like there's, as, as you just read, that he, he broke the, the tablets, tachat hahar, tachat hahar does, of course, literally mean um, uh, uh, underneath, that is at the foot of the mountain. But tachat, like in the phrase, ayin tachat ayin, an eye for an eye can mean instead of. So, so you know, you have this image, Sinai, the mountain was quaking, and the people, and it was all so close. And then they, then they, then they turn bad, and they're worshiping the calf, and you get the feeling like the mountain was going to blow, the mountain was going to explode itself, and Moses does something cathartic and necessary to divert. And this, this is the, this is the Yashikach, this is the well-done Moses, Moses' finest hour, the world was going to explode because of their faithlessness, and Moses sort of redirected the fury into one small act, uh, and so that was maybe a brilliant act of, of of breaking the crisis. And and then finally, there's a there's a whole another way of, of approaching, which is I think also I think it's also true in this poetic way, which is that when Moses later on in the Book of Numbers is going to get punished by not being entered in the land because he quote unquote hit the rock. I think that that's like a subtle way of referring to this story, that Moses's punishment is actually for destroying the rock, destroying this rock, destroying and the, the tablets, destroying the, the the stone tablets exactly, and that and and um, that he he does have a, an anger problem and didn't take didn't treat these tablets with the appropriate kind of reverence. So right. I think all these things are possible maybe they all have a piece of the truth. I, I want to give Moses uh, 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 the gold the gold leadership award here, okay? And say that that this is a great moment which which he staves off God's anger and and he expresses his own anger because he has a has remarkable self-understanding at this moment that he knows that he's indispensable and I want to just kind of prove that but you know we have the moment where he 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 orders the Levites, you know, problematic in its own way. But the very next moment is saying, "Look, I gotta, I gotta. There, there, there's so much potential for destruction here. I want God to to forgive you." By Yashav Moshe Adonai Vayomar, 
he turns to God and says, it's chapter 32, 31, The people have made a great sin and they made a God of gold. You have to lift up their sin. In other words, you have to forgive them. I think this is the best line in the whole parsha. Erase me from the book. Take me out of the book. This is the greatest moment. He's saying, if you do not do this, if you do not forgive them, I'm not in it. Well, but we know he can't do that because then we would end up with the dangling preposition. It would be the five books of. And that can't happen. <laughs> but I want to come back to something that, that Jeremy said because this really gets to the way I think that we read the Torah. So Jeremy's point is that the people were not ready. And the question that it raises is, does that mean that the golden calf wouldn't have happened a few weeks or a few months later because the people would have had an opportunity to mature? In which case there's this great tragedy. It's like bad timing. You know, the car darted out in front of you, as it were, and hit you. You weren't planning on that happening. Or do we read it kind of existentially that in the life of people, us as individuals, as the descendants of B'nai Israel, we have these moments that are fraught with danger that we don't always act properly, and we never get past them. Yeah, well, the, in the, you know, we know how the book ends. It takes them 40 years to get to, get to, to I mean, they're going to get another set of tablets, okay? And they're going to get a whole, you know, another three books of legislation. They're going to get a lot of laws and rules, but it's going to take 40 years for and a new generation to shake off but, you know, ironically, the 40 years isn't going to come from this. It's going to come from the spies. So, okay, fine. So, so and, and that it, you know. But, Unless you read that also similarly to the way, the way you read the, the Hitting of the Rock, Jeremy? Well, I, I, I like what you said about the, just the paradigmatic approach to human spirituality. Like we were talking about before we started uh, recording, you know, the Kabbalistic, the Kabbalistic mythology about the vessels for, to contain the light of the world's shattering and that there's a kind of parallel to this, the, the Luchot shattering. And, and I think that both of those stories, you know, can be read, certain, certainly the story of Moses can be read as like something that happened to a people at a given moment in time. And if it had happened at a different moment in time, the reactions might've been different. But I think at the sort of deep DNA level of human spirituality, they're, they're about the, you know what it means to be a finite person confronting an infinite task like they're finite they're they're always going to be a mixture of spiritual and physical they're always going to be both you know noble and stupid and and no one is ever ready all the time so i look i think i think uh, I, we could go in so many directions i want to i want to propose an idea that the bottom line here is that there's forgiveness that God does forgive them. Of course, it takes tremendous intercession on Moses' behalf. And Moses, we see in the in the chapter in the parsha. I mean, one of the most phenomenal moments in the entire Torah is in this in this parsha, where Moses asks God. We said we mentioned it before. Show me, show me your face. Show me. I want to see you. There's some. There's an urgency about it. And and what we what what is disclosed to Moses is God's forgiving nature, that God is compassionate to, to the thousands generation, that God, and that, and that I think in the arc of the story, they're given a second chance. I can't tell you how, how, how it's, it's like even to say that 
You know, you get chills saying that. It's like you, 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 you people, you, you stiff-necked people, you, you difficult people, you, 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 you worshipped a calf. Okay, I'm going to give you a second chance. I mean, that's what it's about, and and we've built a whole religion based on on this moment. Yom Kippur is really the anniversary of this moment. It's saying we're going to summon this moment in in as the as the the archetype of your relationship that it's always going to be where you know you 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 can make some really grave errors and you so, can so explain, explain it to the people a little bit better which is that uh, which is that the um, the account is that Moses comes down with yes. the first tablet sees the golden calf and breaks the first tablets on the 17th of Tammuz right. goes back up for another 40 days and comes back down with the second set of tablets on, on ten, Yom Kippur and ten, 10 Tishrei. Yeah. And that this so, you know, the paradigm of forgiveness. But you know, I, w- I want to give uh yeah. I want to give some uh, of, of course this is absolutely correct. Moses goes up and has this experience with God and God says it, the grammar is complicated there are different interpretations about who the subjects are. Uh God passes before Moses and he, and God says or Moses says Adonai Adonai Rahum Vechanu the, the gracious and forgiving God. But let's give Let's give some super gigantic uh, uh, religion of repentance and forgiveness props to the rabbis because the actual verse is Adonai Adonai El Rachum Vechanun, the merciful, gracious God, Erech Hapayim, patient, Rav Chesed Be'emet, abounding in, in faithfulness and, and kindness, Notzer Chesed La'alafim, keeping kindness for a thousand generations, Notzer Avon Vafesha Vechata'ah, forgiving all kinds of bad behavior, Vinake Lo Yinake. But listen, I'm not going to forgive you totally. I'm going to punish you first for three generations, thousand generations of kindness, but three generations of of punishment. And and the Torah actually says, okay, basically punishment is kicked down the road a little bit. But by the way, there has to be punishment. By no means will I fail to punish. And we Jewish tradition or the rabbis or whoever just stuck a period in the middle of the sentence that changed it from, you know, I will not, uh, that I will certainly punish to, I totally forgive. It changed. It it was like a a complete and total changing of the meaning of the verse um, to create the thoroughgoing repentance or the thoroughgoing forgiveness. And like, it's, I just feel that there, I feel like that is, in some sense, the consummate act of midrash, which is to say that the we have a we have a Torah, we inherit a Torah, and the readers of the Torah extract the teaching of kindness. Well, they the teach Torah is not always so from, kind. From the Nevi'im, the Nevi'im also recorded and also leave pieces of that text uh, off of it, and and so the rabbis well, are simply extending that. Go ahead, Barry. So the question is: So Elliot, in your reading, then this is one of Moses's great moments in Absolutely. defense of the people. He is Absolutely. the the great advocate. Absolutely. And we've acknowledged that God is the great forgiver. Yes. The question that's left then, is B'nai Israel the great repenter? Is there any sign of repentance in the story on behalf of B'nai Israel? So, what Or is this really the chesed la'alafim, that this is God's overabundant graciousness to the unrepentant sinner? Okay, so, so we don't get evidence full evidence that they are repentant, but they, I want to say they have potential. This is the people that always has potential and will always have 
a mechanism and instrumentality of doing that through what later becomes Teshuvah, but of course in, in biblical religion is through the whole mechanism of Kapara in, in the Beit HaMikdash and the, and, and the sanctuary, etc. In other words, the people, while not while while they're 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 not per, they're not perfect at all. They're they're still rotten, and they still do rotten things later on. They always have potential, and and I think that, that I mean that's such a refreshing way of seeing it because what are we if not people filled with potential, right? We we we, we we're not we're not horrible people. We always have the potential to to improve ourselves, and I think this is the message. That comes out of this parsha. You get a chance. You get a second chance. Okay. Well, it's an uplifting message. Yeah, it's a very uplifting message. Right. So it gives us a chance to, in the poetic imagery, to go up the mountain with Moses. Absolutely, and that's the where you have to get it. You have to make the effort. Go up the mountain. Everybody has to try. You have that's- to hew the second set of tablets. There's, there's every, you know, there's always going to be the case that. Um, as long as you live in this world, the tablets are broken. So now you have to hew the second cool. set of tablets cool. and carry them up the mountain and write them again. You have to make the effort, and that's where we have to stop. We have, we're stopping as we walk up the mountain. We're going up the mountain with the two tablets, and we're holding it with the potential that God's light will engrave themselves on the tablets of our with that, I want to thank you all for watching us and listening to us. We so appreciate your time with us. And for my good friends, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Just there. See you all next week in the next edition of Parsha Talk.